1: Yes, it is, and welcome back. Coming to you live from the Guns Etc. Studios, it is a delight to finish the week and day and hour with our good friend, my good friend, Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Pete, you may, I was just, as I said that, I was just thinking, you may be the best friend I have that I've never physically met.
2: (laughs) That's right. That could be stuff. and same for me.
1: Oh, I was same hoping that would be the. <laughs> yeah. right. Okay. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I like. I love it. I love it. I guess that's the new world we live in. It would that sentence yeah. would not have been understood thirty years ago.
2: That's right. That's right. No, it's. uh That's true how uh, so much of that has changed, for sure.
1: There's a lot of uh, kind of floating around I want to talk to you about. It has everything to do with from Joe Biden and the Supreme Court, Russia and Ukraine. But before we do, I want to delve into something that hit a few chords with me that you tweeted or retweeted about. Uh, It was a piece in The New York Times, Pete. Uh, It was an interview with Rui Tuxierra um mm-hmm. a, a lot of in the people in this audience wouldn't know who he is and that's okay he was kind of a niche author at when when he was famous uh talking kind of about intramural intramural uh uh discussions and debates within the democratic party although well respected uh in yep. washington dc he used to hold monthly uh lunches actually that i would attend yep. back in the day i don't know if he was still doing that or if you'd ever done that Talking about um, uh, basically what he thought of uh, as an emerging uh, democratic majority uh, because of a lot of immigration issues, a lot of class issues, a lot of population and sociology issues, that the Democratic Party was going to become the single dominant party in America, not because of what they said, but because of who our people in this country were. And he's right. rethinking a lot of that now, isn't he?
2: Yeah. Yeah, he is. And you know, we've had this conversation before, Seth, about my ongoing description of the Democratic uh Democratic Party that it's uh a an uneasy coalition of what I call the beer and pretzel Democrats and the Wine and Cheese Democrats.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh
2: and increasingly Um, These splits are along what might be called class lines, certainly household income, educational attainment, um, rural versus urban and so forth. Uh, But the same, in some ways, uh, populist revolution that we've seen inside the uh, GOP, uh, we've seen also mirrored in some ways uh, in the Democratic Party. Uh, the difference being that uh, we seem to be seeing the creation of a new uh, Reagan Democrat um, who may look different than the Reagan Democrat of the 1980s, uh, but of course the the begging question is will there be will there be a Reagan to call them forth, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, that remains to be seen. But the the growing class split—the the split between elites and what might be called the working class on the left—is significant. We're seeing it here in California and around the country.
1: Are where you see it in California, Pete? I, <laughs> I almost want to say that the mayor of San Francisco might be one of these. A year ago, she cuts $120 million from the police budget. Yeah. A month ago, she's decrying the BS policies that aren't uh, supporting the police. I almost wonder if maybe she is the uh, if she's the poster girl uh, or example of what we're talking about here. That is something, by the way, Rui Tixier goes into in this interview. He says, uh, for example, right after the George Floyd— uh, Uh, after george floyd was killed uh there was a a, an awful lot of talk right there was an awful lot of talk about uh over uh, incarceration there was an awful lot of talk about racism but got lost to the democratic party a concern that i think americans have in large measures crime the discussion of crime got lost and so your london breeds got taken in by this
2: yeah, you know, that that old phrase of uh, Irving Kristol's of the neocons is they were mugged by reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, in the case of London Breed and other Democratic city leaders, uh, that's a literal mugging that's yeah. happening yeah. out there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so the cr- crime is certainly one of those issues. But at the same time, there's, of course, education as well. There are these issues that have been exacerbated by COVID and the response to COVID around uh, business closures and school closures. Um, In many of these ways, the fissures that we that I think many of us had seen on the left along these class and in some cases, ethnic and racial lines between those who could work from home, send their kids to private schools and basically have their lives uh, remain untouched by COVID uh, versus those who really had to bear the brunt of it mm-hmm. given the type of work they did mm-hmm. or sending their kids to pri- uh, public schools or living in high crime neighborhoods uh, and again it, that old Reagan line about he, n- he didn't leave the Democratic Party it left him mm-hmm. I, that is happening uh, millions of times over in this country and, and certainly Rui really gets at at those issues. Uh, But it goes back, remember last time we chatted about that uh, piece in The Atlantic by Amy Schmidt, Uh the the ardent Democrat who was not going to become a Republican, but was leaving the Democratic Party because of uh, steps around education.
1: Yes, yes, yes. One, one may. Say, what was her name again? Do you remember? You just said. Did you just? Amy Schmidt. Yeah, Amy. Amy Schmidt. We we might want to think of an Amy Schmidt dialectic. You know, they start. <laughs> yeah, they start. They start with leaving the party, and then it used to be. It's. It was never quite right, but they used to say. You know, the difference between socialism and communism is one is on the road to the other. <laughs> Maybe, you know we can have some version of that in the opposite direction. The thing, Pete. Well, there's two things you raised with your with what you just said. Um, let's first examine for a second what the <clears throat> what that vaunted Reagan Democrat that heralded Reagan Democrat was. Remember, pollsters looked at what was it, Macomb May- County, Macomb County um, in Michigan, wasn't it? Am I, am I, and they were looking in, in at at Catholic voters. They were looking at uh, what used to be called lunch pale Catholic voters. But yeah. when when you distilled it all down, it really was people who were tired of being pushed around and their fundamental values assaulted by their government. That's what it really boiled down to, didn't it, in many respects? I mean, it was about schools and it was about abortion and it was about race. But it was about that, you know, those are values issues, and they were just tired of being pushed around on these things because they knew they weren't stupid, they knew they weren't racist, and they knew that they shouldn't right. have to endow a procedure that violated their conscience.
2: No, that's right. And and some of those reasons that you outlined certainly translate yeah. to today. Yeah, that, that's right? where I was going. Um,
1: exactly, exactly. Go yeah. On. yeah.
2: Um, although I think what's, what's different about today is that the ability of Democrats to, who had always held that, um, you know, government is not necessarily a bad thing, that it's it's there to help those um, especially in need, but also to perform essential services uh, that in ways we never saw back in the eighties, um, Uh, although we saw to a degree in the public safety area. Uh But this education issue is one in which I think has really pushed a lot of people who were moderate Democrats, and I'm thinking of those, particularly those in ethnic and racial uh, minority Uh groups, uh, those who really do depend on the school districts not only to teach their kids but also just to remain open, um, that has, I think, pushed a lot of them to realize that um, just kind of the offhanded support of teachers and the importance of public school education, um, frankly, uh, isn't isn't being reciprocated.
1: Pete, you just raised something that gave me a thought I haven't had in about 150 years, But it's this on another side of the Reagan coalition uh, was something people may be loath to remember or even want to remember. But it is true that there was a large swath of evangelicals that supported Jimmy Carter in 1976 that were Democrats. Part of it was regional. Um, think of your Jerry Falwell's for a moment, the moral majority, if you will. And they switched to Reagan and people say, well, was it abortion? You know what it was? It started with education. It started with yeah. the with the Carter uh, Education Department and Justice Department going after private colleges and private education and things like uh, uh, early, right. early versions of vouchers and, and that sort of thing. Um Let me do this. Let me take my quick commercial break. Let's pick up on that, if we don't mind. The power of education in our policy, of course, but also its forgotten ability to project so much into our politics. Gosh knows, if that weren't an issue, we might have still a Democratic governor in Virginia. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Pete Peterson, dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. We'll be right back. Yeah, yeah, we'll play that from our Spotify Spotify playlist. Just not uh, the opposite of that, uh, Neil uh, Neil Young, right? Wasn't his song uh, response to that? Pete Peterson is our guest, the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're thinking about going into uh, going to graduate school, going into graduate work in public policy. Um, that's the school for you. We talk about a lot of the problems in higher education. Pepperdine School of Public Policy is the answer. Pete, I was just making a point with you as we went to the break. We were You had brought up how uh, the issue of education has come to play in our politics, and it dawns on me uh, that may, may, maybe this has been the sleeping giant all along that we in the conservative movement haven't figured out much until recently. Um, we saw it certainly in Virginia, but as I was pointing out, a lot of they weren't Reagan Democrats, but a lot of people left the Democratic Party for the Republican Party in the Carter years, going into the election of 1980, particularly in the evangelical community because of being pushed around on issues of education. And it just seems to me, maybe maybe there is a sleeping giant here. You 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 t- you, you tick off parents enough. Of course, it presupposes parents having the right values in their head in the right direction in the first place. Assuming that, maybe that's where the next party fault line will be. Maybe truly for all the claims of all these Republicans that have said they want to be our education president, maybe the party should just declare itself the education party. Maybe.
2: I couldn't agree more with that. And and that is particularly true in these deep blue states, which... Uh, By and large, uh, the most powerful organized political movement within these states are the teachers' unions. Uh, That is particularly true here in California with the California Teachers' Association. And so uh, claiming that mantle of um, being the education party, especially in the midst of a moment when I think people – are really being able to differentiate the difference between their teacher and the teacher's union. Uh, that is a bifurcation which is uh, really does not bode well for the Democrats.
1: No, um, it doesn't. Um, and I don't want to be in this position that I want to help them in any sense. But I do want to be in a position where I point out to the independent, the open-minded Democrat, uh, the offended Democrat, the pushed-around Democrat, the neglected Democrat, that there is a solution to this, and it's over here. I do want to point that out, right? I don't think the Democratic Party is going to fix You look how closely they tied themselves to the NEA for decades and then redoubled yep. and re-tripled down on that during, uh, during COVID and over the last year. The, the, I don't think the Democratic Party is going to get better on this or take the lessons of Virginia seriously at all. Fine by me, in a sense, so long as we are con- in control of this.
2: Well, and of course, what did we see in the in the night before uh, election day in Virginia? As we saw, the head of the major national teachers union yep. uh, on the stump mm-hmm. for Terry McAuliffe, right? And of course, that became the issue uh, that really did long way uh, for McAuliffe and. As we discussed before, and I, I'm really going to be interested to see as we enter the 2022 cycle whether the pollsters are going to continue this uh, new demographic uh, survey work uh, that was started for the first time that I can remember in Virginia by uh, polling uh, – Parents with kids in public schools.
1: Oh yes, you were you were raising this uh, last time we talked. Say another word on right. that, right? Right, right, right.
2: Well, again, I've never heard that right. or seen that right. uh, demographic broken out. Um, you know, sometimes you could see in cross-tabs of, of larger political surveys, you can see parents, or you can see uh, has uh,
1: children, uh, doesn't, or something like that, married, exactly. not married, right?
2: But this this particular some insightful pollster. Uh, seeing the winds that were blowing in Virginia, realized, I, I wonder if I could find uh, just parents with kids in public schools. And that was the one that, a, a, again, across party identification. These were obviously Democrats and Republicans and, and no-party preference voters. But that was a 10-point gap yeah. within about a week of Election Day in Virginia. It was 55-45 for Yunkin. And uh, that's a not insignificantly sized (laughs) demographic in almost any state that you want to look at. And because it cuts across party lines, for that to swing so much, again, in a blue state like Virginia has been, uh, for that to swing in favor of Republicans just further, I think buttresses your point, that certainly for those public school parents uh Youngkin, if not the Republican Party, uh, are the party for uh, public education.
1: We're talking to Pete Peterson from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Pete, it, it, it comes to us kind of in two areas of, um, of sharp relief when it comes to education and what parents have been angry about, uh, one having to do with COVID, one having to do with critical race theory. Which is a kind of interesting mirror of something Plato said about the chief question any society needs to ask itself is uh, are, uh, what, 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 who's teaching the children and what are they being taught? The first question can kind of be related to COVID. Are, are the children even going to school? But once there, what are they being taught? And it's probably fair to say most parents who were upset – About education issues over the last couple years, it probably did start really with the COVID stuff. The CRT took a little more work to convince to to communicate to parents, uh, and then to communicate it in a way that you know was serious. And frankly, not every parent is going to be opposed to CRT, but in a way that most parents were opposed to not having their kids going to school most
2: right. No, that's right. And again, I I think there were, and uh, there was a great article in Politico, I remember, interviewing the political consulting team, uh, which happens to be from uh, San Diego. Jeff Rowe and his agency were the consultants for the Youngkin campaign. And one of the things that they would pull out when uh, reporters or others would say, well, wasn't this just about CRT? They said, no, this is about education policy. Yeah. So they were doing yeah. their yeah. Uh, polling and internal testing. This was just about the state of education in Virginia. And so within that, yes, you had some that were very much uh, against CRT being taught in schools, but you also had the closure of schools. Yeah. You also had various uh, masking policies and COVID response policies. We will remember some of these school board meetings The parents were getting up Raising a series of different yep, issues. That's, and right. So that's right. That that really was, this was a, a much more of an umbrella issue than just simply on one. one yes, two.
1: yes. But we're going to have to work on those spokes to keep that umbrella. Uh, help me with the metaphor. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: From drowning us. Okay. I right. <laughs> got lost true. in it. Pete Peterson <laughs> is our guest. There's a lot more to discuss. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. There's a song about schools. Uh, Pete Peterson is our guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Pete, you and I often, and I don't know if it's true of you today or not, you and I often will read Peggy Noonan's piece uh, a day before it's in print. And um, she was writing about the issues having to do with the U.S., Ukraine, and Russia. And she made the point that The two main wings of argument just seem a little bit tired and worn out. One wing being Ukraine is not in our interest. uh, Let it be not worth an American life or any 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 military force on the one hand. On the other, the other side is, uh, you know, we need to use and show brute force to put this dictator Putin in his place. And that these two things seem just a little bit tired and a little bit worn out. Somewhere in the middle, you get certain discussions about this. I was listening to a radio host the other day say, well, I mean, you know, these neocons are just rubbing their hands to go to war. They've been doing so from Vietnam to Afghanistan to Iraq. And it dawned on me, you know, sometimes, sometimes too much gets collapsed into, in, 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 into one thing. Um, the neocons were not Vietnam. That was really the opposite of neoconservatism right. in foreign policy, wasn't it? Nixon yeah. and Kissinger, yeah. weren't they the Bates Noir of neoconservatism? That's one thing. Yeah. The other neoconservatism really didn't start off as a foreign policy point of view. That's uh, right. That, that's the other thing. You had quoted Irving Crystal earlier. Um he I don't know if he ever wrote it he was the founder of it. I don't know if he ever wrote anything on foreign policy, quite frankly. Um but something is going on about America and its place in the world and what both enemies and allies are looking to. And I, I, I you know I don't I don't have a settled opinion on what our response in Ukraine would be, but I do know, or at least believe that if we were seen as strong with our allies and reliable to them and if we were seen as strong to our enemies and to be feared from them we probably wouldn't be here and that doesn't necessarily involve use of force
2: i agree with that i would say politically uh, what is different about the period we're in now as opposed to the others that were cited is that we have, maybe for the first time in American history, uh, certainly in the last century, maybe even might might say there was some of this in World War I, um, what might be called an anti-interventionist movement on both the left and the right okay. of a scope and scale that we haven't seen before. And in large part, it is because the movement on the right um, in response to uh, the real uh, challenges that we saw in both Iraq and Afghanistan. I don't think anything having to do with uh, the current or future state of American foreign policy or what might be called America's role in the world uh, can really be seen now without uh, it refracting through our experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan right right and I think in that um, whereas there's always been an anti-war or anti-interventionist side on the left uh, there is as you know a a this uh, a real growing and significant movement <laughs> on the right um, that is increasingly suspicious of American intervention and it could be seen, that um, there is evidence for that suspicion, given the results of what we've seen.
1: Absolutely. 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 On the other side of that, and this is where it gets complicated, I think, Pete, and on the other side of that, if you take our experience on our exit from Afghanistan, and if Russia does go into Ukraine and we don't do anything... That's going to leave another impression on the world, isn't it? Um yeah. That's going that to solidify. Is, that is that is will actually thing. concretize the problem we face now.
2: Yeah. No, That that is the thing that really makes this such a, a tenuous moment right. that we're in, right. exacerbated by the pullout from Afghanistan, right. is that um, those steps have – consequences that you may not be ready to that's right respond that's to that's right and um and obviously we have a president that in the press conference uh, in which he was talking about ukraine made so many missteps yeah uh, that even his presentation or discussion on the topic left so much to be desired
1: yeah good point well said pete all right, you and I are obviously not qualified to serve on this U.S. Supreme Court, and it's not because <laughs> you did or didn't go to law school, or I didn't or did go to law school. It has nothing to do with that. Uh, it has to do with other things. Can we talk about that when we come back? Yes, because I want you on the Supreme Court. <laughs> I want people that know the Constitution to. You don't have to go to law school to be on the Supreme That's Court. That's true. The, That's true. Robert yes. Jackson did not go to law. We'll be right back. Yep. <laughs> Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. He posts great stuff too on social media. If you want to follow him on Twitter, he's at Pete. The number four C A Pete for C A Pete. The Supreme Court stakes—they're always <clears throat> hot, and uh, they're always contentious. Uh, this one uh, already, uh, before we even have someone in mind, is starting off with contention in a weird time and place because you know usually it has to do when you have someone retire the contention's have to do when you have someone retiring who was appointed by the party opposite the right. current sitting president right you're you're that's right. You're, you're, yep. you're trading a liberal for a conservative or vice versa if you think in those and that's right. not really present here you have a clinton appointee being replaced by a biden appointee but boy we're off to the races already aren't we
2: we are. And in large part, it is because of uh, recent history of the confirmations we saw, obviously, with uh, with Brett Kavanaugh in particular. Uh, certainly, there are those on the right. Um, uh, in fact, I heard one Judge Jeanine the other day say that Republicans really need to make this uh, very contentious. At the same time, something else we haven't seen in the last three decades of confirmation um, processes is a 50-50 Senate. Right. And so um, both of those things line up. In other instances, uh, while a battle may have been waged, it was the the end uh, result was pretty much seen from the beginning. Yep. Um, but this is one where one vote one way or the other really could – change the outcome and it could certainly be seen as i think there was some motivation behind uh the timing of this resignation that there could be motivation for republicans to simply delay this process Mm. but um certainly i think uh it is we'll, we'll see who the president puts forward but i think it's that 50 50 senate as much as anything else Um, that sets up the the prospects for uh, battle.
1: There's another prospect for battle. I was uh, talking to the audience earlier about this, Pete. I was here in Phoenix. uh, uh, I'm I'm a Phoenician and I was in Arizona when Sandra Day O'Connor was uh, nominated by Ronald Reagan. And I remember being very fascinated by all of this uh, after Watergate. It was like maybe the first big political consequential thing I was paying attention to. And um, there was a lot of talk. There were a lot of articles. There weren't as many Sunday shows, but that which there were, they all went into um, questioning whether she was competent or was whether she was to serve on the Supreme Court or whether she was selected exclusively because they needed a woman with a law degree. This was everywhere, that conversation. And it, it had to have been very hard on, on on Sandra Day O'Connor in her own right. Um, but we're kind of doing that again here, except in many respects worse, because we're making even more specific and narrow the categories of eligibility. And it just seems to me, I know it's a delicate conversation, but it seems to me, taking the Kamala Harris example, if you make the race and gender the most important thing, the thing that young girls are going to look up to and, sh- and, 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 and have a hero in, if, if, if that person fails, you, yeah. you're, you're, you're in this weird territory that Shelby Steele got in so much t- trouble for outlining years ago called the stigma of permanent incompetence, Right.
2: Well, I think that the challenge if we were to somehow put ourselves in the shoes of some of the prospective candidates yeah. that we've we've heard mentioned, yeah. I would feel a little unsettled yeah. that the reason I was on that yeah. list yeah. at least in part as much as the president wants to say that they have to be extremely competent sure. but are these other more genetic qualities. Yeah. Yeah. Uh and I, I just find that disturbing. Um, Of course, the president has a right to make a selection based on uh, the criteria that he wishes. But by making them so exclusively based on these categories, one would think if you were the person selected to know that that is at least part of the reason why you were selected, um, disturbing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you. you, What was the phrase you used? A sense of unease. You used a good phrase. I I don't want to put words in your mouth. You can use that if you want. A sense of unease about hearing this kind of thing. Do you worry about a larger public that doesn't have a sense of unease about these things or any kind of uh, compunction that that is raised by these kinds of statements? I worry about that. I worry about a country. Or my fellow countrymen who just think this is okay now, this is a standard coin of the realm, yeah, nothing wrong in just in just picking people by race,
2: well, and again, it makes one wonder whether and i don't I actually don't see this happening with a Republican president, yeah, but you wonder if this is just going to continue to go forth, yeah um, because the the logical end of these identity based uh, nominations for whatever the position is, invariably, it will leave people out. We yeah. only have nine Supreme Court right. justices. Right. So to say that we wanted to perfectly reflect the United States in all ways, uh, well, at least in ways that might be construed as uh, racial, ethnic, <clears throat> sexual identity, is impossible. Right. I mean, where is our Where's our Asian American right. candidate, right. right? Where's our Native American candidate? Right. You know, um, and so at at what point uh, do we realize that, especially with a group the size of nine people, uh, to say that you wanted to so-called perfectly reflect the country they're serving, um, much less consider their competency, which really should be at at a premium. Um, it's it really doesn't. Uh, it doesn't bode well for the future.
1: You know what's an interesting? I got to run here in a sec, Pete. But this was something I, I guess I, if I knew, I'd forgotten or didn't know at all. Someone pointed this out the other day. For something, for a court that you keep hearing about is supposed to represent America. It's kind of interesting that of those nine Supreme Court justices, yeah. n- not a single Protestant. That right. is interesting, isn't it?
2: Well, and of course, you think about percent of the country well, just, yeah, right, <laughs> right, and, and Barrett right, coming from Notre Dame, who was right. one of the first non-Ivy yeah. League, yeah. yeah, So, what categories are we looking yeah. at, that's yeah. what makes this such a, a farcical operation, is that <laughs> there are so many ways to understand, yeah, no,
1: no, anything. no, and it says something about the human mind, too, is that not the relevant thing, Pete Peterson, right. I got to run, but we love yeah. you,
2: great to be with you, Seth,
1: as always. Thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us, some of your week with us. A bunch of you asked if I would repeat uh, how I closed uh, the quote. I closed my monologue with, yes, uh, tribute to all police, particularly keeping in mind the family of Jason Rivera. Uh, here in Phoenix, Tyler Maldivon's, uh recovery and recuperation, the six cops that were shot in the line of duty in the last uh, two days and others. Um, G.K. Chesterton By dealing with the unsleeping sentinels who guard the outposts of society, it tends to remind us that we live in an armed camp, making war with a chaotic world, and that the criminals, the children of chaos, are nothing but the traitors within our gates. When the detective in a police romance stands alone and somewhat fatuously fearless amid the knives and fists of a thieves' kitchen, it serves to make us remember that it is the agent of justice, the policeman who is the original and poetic figure, while the burglars and highwaymen are merely placid old cosmics, happy in the immor- immemorial respectability of apes and wolves. The romance of the police force is thus the whole romance of man. It is based on the fact that morality is the most dark and daring of conspiracies it reminds us that the whole noiseless and unnoticeable police management by which we are ruled and protected is only a successful knight errantry and we give thanks to each one of those knights errant bless you and keep you all and to the rest of you god bless you as well and